Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Seb, if I haven't met you before. Uh, keep your Bibles open to that last passage, Mark chapter 9, and I'll pray for us. Father God, we do praise and thank you that you are a God who sends your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for hearing about those youth who responded on camp to follow the King. And we pray for us as we begin a new series that you would help us to see Jesus and to follow him in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me start by sharing just briefly with you about an embarrassing moment of mine a few years ago. Uh, While I was studying at college and working as a student minister uh, at a church, I found myself constantly saying to people the same phrase, can you say that again? I seem to keep mishearing people and forgetting people's names and key details in conversations. Now, some of you might think that's very normal of someone I know too, but I didn't think so. So finally, I'd had enough and I said to my wife, Jess, I'm going to book myself in for a hearing test. So I went to an audiologist in Newtown, hoping to finally get to the bottom of this issue. The audiologist did extensive hearing tests on me, and at the end of the whole process said to me, there's absolutely nothing wrong with your hearing. To which I was a little tempted to say, can you say that again? (laughs) But it gets worse. After this, she began to give me Uh, After telling me there's nothing wrong with my ears, she went on to then recommend some very specific practical advice. Like when I'm at a cafe, it would probably be better if I face the wall uh, or at least the building side. That way uh, I will have a better chance of paying attention to whoever's uh, talking to me and not getting distracted. And the list went on. And as I sat there listening to her, a part of me died inside as I thought about the fact that I was going to have to go home and tell Jess that I'd been professionally diagnosed as being basic uh, with basic inattentiveness. Well, this morning, as we begin our series uh, for Term 1 in Mark 9 to 16, the big question I want to ask you is this. As we look at what is really quite an incredible scene in Mark's Gospel, ask yourself, what's got your attention? Because Mark's account of the transfiguration has two simple themes running throughout it. Mark wants our eyes and our ears focused on Jesus as God's Messiah King. So if you're writing notes this morning, two points as we come to this scene. Point one, look at Jesus. And point two, listen to Jesus. Point one. Well, from the very beginning of Mark's Gospel... Mark has wanted us to look at Jesus. His whole account is written to bring us readers face to face with him. Remember the very first verse of the gospel. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That first verse really sets the agenda for Mark's whole account. In fact, you could basically cut the book of Mark in half and you'd see two questions being answered. Chapters 1 to 8, who is Jesus? Chapters 9 to 16, what did Jesus come to do? Well, our series begins at the start of chapter 9, just shortly after the turning point in Mark's Gospel, which comes when Peter rightly answers Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Verse 29 of chapter 8, Peter says, you 
are the Messiah. And immediately, Jesus goes on to explain that he must suffer, be rejected and be killed, which puts Peter's head in a spin. He's like me with the audiologist. Can you say that again? I want a second opinion. Because for Peter, he can't comprehend a Messiah who's come to die. That doesn't sound like God's anointed king at all. That doesn't sound like a king who's going to triumphantly come and bring God's kingdom against the Roman rule. Jesus, what are you talking about? What's this nonsense about going to die? To which Jesus responds with some of his strongest words yet. Chapter 8, verse 33. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Whoa. Strong words from Jesus, serving to make it absolutely clear. Peter's right. Jesus is the Messiah, but so wrong at the same time in his understanding about what that means. Well, chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, some of you standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Well, that's one way to get people's attention. Verse 1 is like a bridge verse. Mark connects what Jesus has just been teaching all of his disciples about what it means to follow him with what happens immediately next for three of his disciples. Verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. Remember that Old Testament reading, Exodus 24 before? Well, Mark includes some very deliberate echoes to that scene here. For example, six days, three named companions going up with Moses, a mountaintop experience of divine revelation with God, the cloud covering the mountain, the glory of the Lord being revealed to them. Now, the two accounts are not exactly the same. We're not actually told by Mark which mountain they went up, only that it was high. And there are other detailed differences, but the similarities are enough to highlight. As we look at Jesus in this scene, we are seeing another great divine revelation like the one that was the big one modeled off Moses on Mount Sinai. But this time even greater because it's God's glorious son being revealed. And Mark focuses our attention particularly on three visual things in verses 1 to 9. Jesus' appearance, Elijah and Moses, and the cloud. Well, firstly, Jesus' appearance. The Greek word for transfigured in verse 3 is where we get our English word metamorphosis. Now, you might remember how a caterpillar transforms into a butterfly. There's a radical change involved. Well, here, Jesus' appearance changes too. But it's an outward change that reflects actually who Jesus really is. Verse 3. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, you might recall Daniel's vision 
in chapter 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. Well, Jesus is dazzling white. Remember again, Moses back in Exodus 34 needed to put a veil over his face after being in the Lord's presence and speaking with him because his face radiated afterward. Well, Jesus is visible, visibly shining, but all over his clothes. But unlike Moses, Jesus' outward change actually reflects something altogether different to Moses. Because Jesus is not just like a man, like Moses was. No, as the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. It's like the veil has been lifted in the ultimate way, removed for a moment to remind us and Jesus' disciples of Jesus' true nature as the eternal Son. The one who made himself nothing, Philippians 2, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. The one who remember at Christmas time came down, humbled himself, took on flesh. Well, secondly, Mark draws our attention to two new appearances in verse 4. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Why Elijah and Moses? Curiously, both had mountaintop experiences with the Lord, Moses at Sinai, Elijah at Horeb. Both also had strange finishes. Moses was buried by the Lord in the last chapter of Deuteronomy. Elijah taken up by a fiery chariot, 2 Kings verse chapter 2. Both were prophets opposed in their day, persecuted by the authorities, Moses by Pharaoh, Elijah by Ahab and Jezebel. So why these two? Is it that Moses represents the law, the first five books of the Bible, and Elijah the prophets, so that by being beside Jesus, they're like a visible pointer. Here is the one who fulfills the law and the prophets, perhaps. But why does Mark list Elijah ahead of Moses? And why Elijah to represent the written prophets? Why not Jeremiah or Isaiah? A better view, I think, comes in the last chapter of our Old Testament's Malachi 4, where it's the only place in the Old Testament where Moses and Elijah are placed side by side as representatives of the end of the age. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. In other words, Moses and Elijah are end-time figures. And together they're here on the mountain with Jesus with the ultimate end-time figure. The kingdom of God is at hand. Because there, uh, perhaps, perhaps Elijah is listed first by Mark to preempt the disciples' question a little later about him in verse 11. But notice what happens next, verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Well, why does he say that? Well, Mark tells us in the next verse because he was terrified. 
It is interesting, though, the word he uses for shelters actually translates back, in, uh, back as the same word that uh, could mean tent or tabernacle, which fits very well in the Exodus 24 context, which moves straight onto the instructions for the tabernacle. So it could have actually been, Peter, right idea, wrong application. After all, the one in front of Peter is the word become flesh, as John puts it, who made his dwelling, his tabernacle among us. But as Dave mentioned a few weeks ago, it's a terrifying thing to be in the presence of a holy God. Not a light or a trivial thing. Woe is me, said Isaiah in chapter 6. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Peter was terrified. He didn't know what to say. Jesus transfigured, Elijah and Moses appear. Thirdly, we're told a cloud appeared and covered them in verse 7. What does this mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the cloud was a symbol of God's presence and glory. Psalm 97 verse 2 says, Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Verse 7 of Mark 9, And a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. And it's this vision of this glorious son that would stay with Peter, James and John for the rest of their lives. Listen to how Peter will write and reflect back on this event as an old man in 2 Peter 1, written about the second coming of Christ. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. John will write at the start of his gospel, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. What about you? What's got your attention at the start of 2022? One reason Mark has drawn our focus, the eyes toward Jesus in all these ways, is that we would have a perspective shift when it comes to Jesus, that our view of Jesus would be enlarged, would be made bigger. How's your view of Jesus going? I spoke to one of the speakers at KO and he said, it's very simple. I was asking, what do you do for mission on the coast? He says, very simple. We make it very complex. We try and listen to all the things that other people are listening to and try and engage with them in different ways. But really, you just have to ask people, what do you think about Jesus? And he was exactly right. I tried it uh, later on in the week with uh, one of the youth on camp over dinner. I said, what do you think about Jesus? And it was someone who I thought, actually, they were a Christian. But they said, actually, yeah, I've been thinking about it this week. I, I don't quite know what I think about Jesus. I thought I knew, but I don't quite know. It all sounds too easy that we could just be forgiven or how you become a Christian. And we went to Romans 10 verse 9 and looked at it. God's promise that the person who 
confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised them from the dead, they will be saved. And I encourage that girl, have a chat to your leader. She'd love to chat with you about this. And so she sat next to her at KO. And that night, Thursday night, Dave's, Dave, Dave went through the gospel as clearly as he possibly could. And at the back, as youth were encouraged to consider responding, this girl put up her hand. And then a little later when Dave said, now, those who put up their hand, will you stand? And she stood. We ask people, what do you think about Jesus? Do you know another place in the New Testament where the word transfigured comes up? It's in a slightly different translation. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul applies it to New Covenant Christians, saying, and we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you know how we do that? Contemplate the Lord's glory. We do it by keeping Jesus central in our lives. So as we get into the full swing of a new year, as the school term starts back up, as growth groups start up with a social, as ministry teams, youth, kids get into full swing, ask yourself, What's got my attention at the moment? And is it helping me to admire Christ because what I admire is what I become? Or is it making me find it much harder to see him at all? The transfiguration gives us a glimpse toward where all of history is headed. It's a preview. Philippians 2 verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Mums and dads, but dads in particular, what role are you playing in the life of your kids, your family, to keep Jesus central? Grandparents, what role are you playing in the lives of your grandchildren to keep Jesus central. You want to be bolder like I do in sharing Jesus with people you know, then keep the preview at the forefront of your mind. One day, your neighbor, your housemate, your family member, the person you work with, they will see Jesus face to face. If you have a big view of Jesus, you don't pray small prayers. We need to help each other, 930 congregation, to look at Jesus and see him for who he is, the glorious son. Well, secondly, and a little more briefly, point two, listen to Jesus. The climax of our transfiguration scene comes in verse seven, which we read before but left off the end. Verse seven. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son. Reminding us of the royal son. Psalm 2 verse 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Whom I love. Echoing. Remember the Genesis series. Isaac in Genesis 22. Take the son that you love. Listen to him. Picking up the language of Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. Moses wrote. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among you, 
from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. From that point on, they were looking out. Who is this prophet who will come like Moses? And at one level, there's a general application here for all of us. What's got your attention at the moment? Well, what are you listening to? What is it? What has your ear the most? Is it the newspapers? Is it the daily news? Is it the COVID updates? Is it what someone says at the office? Is it what you're worried someone's saying about you? Is it what you're reading? Is it what you're podcasting? What is the voices that fill your head? Remember the parable of the sower in Mark 4? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The word can get choked out altogether by the cares and worries of this world. How are you going at listening to Jesus in your life? This is something that we chatted at the growth group huddle yesterday morning with all of the growth group leaders and a brief point that we made to growth group leaders was set a culture that starts with you for your groups that you are growing at listening to Jesus every day. And so I want to extend that challenge to group members of growth groups. Have a plan to read God's word every day. It doesn't matter what plan it is, but have a plan. If you need a plan in the response time, say, I need a plan and we'll get you some plans. Ask your growth group leader what they're doing because that's their challenge. But you commit to listening to Jesus yourself every day. Don't be a slave to it, but commit to it. That is how you grow into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. Be committed to growth groups. We want every member at Christchurch to go along to their growth group so that they will see Jesus, so that they will listen to him, so that the word of Christ will dwell richly among us. Don't be flaky. Why? Because we want to be a people who listen at the foot of Jesus. We want to be like Mary, not Martha, to choose the good portion, not the busy portion. We want the word of Christ in us. We want to be fed and nourished. We want to grow mature so we're not tossed around by every wind and wave. We don't want to be conformed to the world. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And three practical ways you can do that are being committed to growth groups, are preparing to gather on a Sunday Bring your Bible to church. Bring a pen to church if that helps you concentrate. Write some notes. Get a good night's sleep the night before. And third, commit to reading God's Word every day. Help support your family, your kids, your housemates, your friends to be in God's Word every day. That your vision, your faith, how you see Jesus, that you don't pick and choose what He says. It's all or nothing. Well, that's quite a wide lens application for us in response to listen to Jesus, listen to him. But I actually think the surrounding context of Mark 9 has a more particular meaning in mind as well for this for the Father's command. Listen to him. And it relates to that earlier dispute that Peter had with Jesus, his instinct in chapter 8 about the prediction that the Son of Man would suffer, be rejected and die. In other words, listen to Jesus in this context means listen to what he's saying about the necessity of his suffering. Why? Because the transfiguration is a preview of Jesus as the glorious son in his resurrection, in his second coming. But the disciples needed to first know that the way to get there was 
through the cross. That to be a follower of Jesus means following the crucified Messiah. Because Jesus' full identity would not be known apart from his path to suffering. And this makes sense of the rest of the passage. Look at verse 8 with me quickly. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Why? Because Jesus isn't just another Moses. He's not just another Elijah. He's the one. He's the unique one. He's the only son. Verse 7, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Not ever, but not now. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Jesus tells his three disciples what had been a, to keep what had been seen as a secret until later. And once again, he implies their favorite topic, he must go to his death. And they stumble on the rising from the dead language, prompting them to ask a different question. Verse 11, different tack. They asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Now, for time's sake, we won't dig in deeply in a detailed way, but the background here is the expectation of a return of Elijah. Malachi 3 verse 1 and the other passage we looked at, Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6, Jesus replies to them, to be sure. Elijah does come first and he restores all things. Why then, though, is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? Well, they didn't recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. Jesus here is speaking about John the Baptist. Matthew's Gospel makes that crystal clear. And the point he makes is that if the forerunner John the Baptist, who fulfills the role of Elijah in the last day, if he suffered and died. Remember Herod and Herodias? Remember Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel? Well, John the Baptist came, suffered, died, and then the Son of Man will certainly suffer at the hands of the authorities as well. And Jesus underlines the point twice. It is written in the Scriptures. It must happen. And he alludes here to the suffering servant in Isaiah. The disciples needed to listen to Jesus. They listened to him as a suffering son by seeing that the path to resurrection glory means suffering first for him and for them. And so we do this by refocusing our attention to see the central place that the cross has. In Jesus' mind... Well, he came to die. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. That girl at KO, she's come to be served by Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for many. And we're going to keep seeing that over and over as we move on in Mark 9 to 16. But what about us as a final word to his followers? What should we expect as we follow this king? Not the mistaken king of Peter and the disciples. Do you know it's refreshing Mark's gospel that he tells us that the very first disciples didn't think rightly about Jesus? Why should we think we instinctively think rightly as well? You might be here and you're visiting church and you've, you've never thought rightly about Jesus at all. You, you're wanting to explore. Jess told me about someone just last week who's been coming along to church who said, I would love to actually explore Jesus more. 
What should we expect as we follow this king, the glorious son and the suffering son? Well, Jesus said, 8 verse 34, last word. Whoever wants to be my disciple, our series is following the king, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, whatever has our attention this morning, I pray that you would shift our perspective to see Jesus rightly, to see him as the glorious son, to see him as the suffering son. And help us, Lord, to be willing to die to self-rule and to live the cross-shaped life as we follow him as our king in Jesus' name. Amen.